this week on Forward. Just about every aspect of Congress as an entity is uh, either inadequate in some degree or out of date. It drives me crazy that you have these folks on Capitol Hill who proclaim that they're miserable, yell at the institution they're within, but then frequently won't lift a finger to make the changes that they can make. There is so much to be done because government is so much bigger than it was 50 or 100 years ago. And instead of prioritizing things that are important and substantive, there was so much symbolic stuff being put into the uh, legislative process. It's my pleasure to welcome to the podcast political scientist, senior fellow at AEI, which is a think tank, and author of the prescient book, Congress Overwhelmed, The Decline in Congressional Capacity and Prospects for Reform. Kevin Kosar. Welcome, Kevin. Thank you for having me on. No problem. I'm excited to talk to you because you are one of the preeminent thinkers on what the heck is going on or not going on in terms of our institutions. First, can you give people a bit of your background? You have a doctorate in political science from NYU. Yeah, I went to NYU and got my master's and PhD there, wrote a dissertation on how uh, Congress had historically uh, handled K-12 through education policy. And then after that, I thought it was going to be an academic, but I ended up um, taking what I thought would be a two-year gig at the Congressional Research Service, the core of nerds inside the Library of Congress. Uh, and that turned into 11 years. And then uh, after that wonderful experience, I hopped to um, the private think tank world where I've been the last nine years. Wow, you've been a think tanker for nine years. Yeah, wow. and, and CRS was like the government version of it. Um, I mean, we literally just a core of nerds trying to give the facts and analysis and, and feed Congress the information it needs. Fantastic. So... Um, so clearly you were shaped by that experience, and you came up with this book uh, a few years ago that, that I, I named Congress Overwhelmed. Uh, so can you describe your experience both in CORE uh, and then uh, the think tank world? Uh, by the way, I, I admire your research a great deal. I agree with most all of it, uh, which we'll dig into. But, uh, but yeah, like what was the experience like? Well, it was, uh, it was incredible. Um, being at CRS was an opportunity to kind of see the legislature, both chambers, uh, close up, but I didn't have to sign up for either the Republicans or the Democrats' teams. I can maintain my distance, and I work with staff on both sides. I work with members on both sides, plenty of committees in both chambers, and it was a lengthy education in seeing how the wheels turn. And, uh, you know, it's a civil servant position, basically tenured for life. And after about a decade of it, I, um, I was sufficiently concerned about what I was seeing going on in Congress that I th was thinking, I, I, I need to figure out a way to try to do something. Wow. And then this opportunity came along where I could step out to a think tank and I would be kind of free to write research and speak very clearly about the institution itself. And um, so, so that's what I did. Well, congrats on that, uh, and I, I think the country may be better off for your deciding to come out to the outside and say, hey, guys, uh, things aren't working so well. So why aren't things so work <laughs> working so well? I mean, the average American senses that 
things are getting rocky. Um, now they, they, they may attribute it to one thing or another, but you've been at this for years and years. Uh, what's been going on? Oh boy, where, where to start? Uh, <laughs> I, so I hope at some point we'll talk about, we'll talk about primaries since elections are the way we hire Please, politicians. Yeah, yeah. yeah, totally. But, uh, gosh, I mean, your typical commentators, political scientists, people who look closely at Congress, they, they tend to couch what's wrong uh, with it under what I call the three P's. Either they say it's the people, it's the parties, or it's polarization. Those are the kind of units of analysis when they try to explain what's, what's going on. And every one of those explanations um, get part of the picture correct. Uh, what I and Lee Drutman of New America and Tim Lapira of, of James Madison University and the various contributors to our volume said was, those things are all important, but let's look at the institution itself. Congress is an organization, it's an entity, it's a firm, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> is it structured in a way that gives it a good chance of succeeding at what's expected of it? And when you use that kind of framework, it's illuminating and also rather depressing. I thought you were going to lead us to a fourth P, uh, which is primaries, which we can talk about. Um, but but let's first talk about what your diagnosis is. So Congress is not set up as an institution to succeed. And I'm, I'm going to throw a few things out there that... I, that I, when I found out, I was like, whoa, that's messed up. Um, so there, there's been a rule in place for a number of years now. I think it's uh, called a Hastert rule where you can't bring legislation to the floor unless it's supported by a majority of the majority, which means that if you're in the minority party, you're doing very, very little legislating <laughs> because you can't actually bring anything. So someone in Congress said to me that if you're in the minority party and you don't have a committee gavel in your hand or you don't have a senior appointment in one of these uh, the, these bodies that, that uh, deliberates over laws, which is a minority of the members, you might as well be a piece of furniture. Um, now, <laughs> uh, of, of course, most members of Congress aren't going to be like, yeah, I just kind of hang out and uh, you know, don't, don't do anything. Um, but if you're in the minority party, that unfortunately is, is what it resembles. Sure. Yeah, abs absolutely. Uh, the sort of collegiality um, between partisans to you know work with one another, uh, particularly on high salience issue, it's just, it's almost non-existent. Um, take any big issue like immigration, you you just are not going to see Democrats and Republicans talking with each other uh, and working together on solutions. Um, they just don't feel incentivized to do that. I mean, the good news is that on like really boring, low salience issues, they've got the space to do it. Um, but funny enough, your question leads us to the primaries issue. Think about it. Immigration. If you're the Democratic Party, do you really want to solve that problem? If you're the Republican Party, do you really want to solve that problem? No, you've got pretty strong incentives to not solve it, but rather to campaign upon it to fundraise upon it, and therefore you own the issue, but you don't own the solution. And that's particularly the case when you're running through the primaries, where you have people who are either really hard on the left or really hard on the right, who are more than likely to vote in those primaries. And so, yeah, that's part, that's part of the problem. The Hastert rule kind of is a reflection of the incentive structure um, that's currently in place. So you were concerned about some of these things, it sounds like, 10 years ago. Was there a degradation uh, or 
a trend line. So one of the trend lines I've seen is that folks who would be described as moderate uh, have been declining in number, in part because of the nature of the parties and the polarization and the primaries. How all the P's in there. Um, but but you said you were concerned back then. Um, what was driving your concerns? And I mean, it's gotten worse since then. Well, it was um, in part what the chambers were spending time on. Um, you know, frequently I would see the House of Representatives trying to push through bills that had no chance of making it to the Senate, to say nothing of getting a signature from a president. But they were pouring time into it. And it's like, well, this is not policymaking. This is symbolic behavior. That's a, that's a concern of mine. I was also concerned with the sheer workload. There is so much to be done because government is so much bigger than it was 50 or 100 years ago. And instead of prioritizing things that are important and substantive, there was just so much symbolic stuff being put into the uh, legislative process. I was like, oh, okay, that's, that's troubling too. I saw the kind of bizarro behavior, which turned out was totally rational, going on in hearings, where members were not actually interested in learning from a witness and then going back and trying to think about how they could improve a policy or develop a new policy, but instead were just either berating the person uh, <laughs> or singing their praises um, without taking any substance away from it. And like, I kept wondering, what's going on? Is it the people? Are these people who are just goofballs in Congress? And then I realized, no, they're, they're rationally responding to the incentive structure. And that's where I kind of said, uh-oh. Because if, if, if the incentives don't change, they're not going to change. And governance isn't going to get better. And so that was a real uh, alarm bell for me. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. You, you talk about these organizational capacities, how government's gotten much bigger and more complex, how policy... By the way, I mean, I, I agree with you that if you look at congressional staffers, 
so a member of Congress shows up and they have a handful of staffers. Uh, they do have a policy person, typically. But then the policy person has to get up to speed on everything under the sun. And you know where they turn to for information? Industry, which is lobbyists. Be like, hey, what the heck's going on with telecom? And it's like, oh, well, I'll tell you what's going on with telecom. <laughs> they, what's going on with AI? What's going on with anything under the sun? Um, and, and so they're very industry dependent. So you, you have a real uh, hand-in-glove relationship there in terms of policy. By the way, it's exacerbated by the fact that uh, I believe the number is something like 60, 65% of uh, members after they leave just become lobbyists. So it's literally like your old colleague coming and being like, hey, what's up? <laughs> you know what yeah. you should really look at <laughs> is this bill. And then their compensation um, uh, goes up. So that's one element of capacity that I think most people looking at it objectively would be like, huh, like you don't have a whole lot of independent um, political or sorry, independent policy guidance, uh, and you don't have the expertise uh, necessarily to get up to speed on, on, on everything. So that's one thing that comes to mind for me. What are the other organizational gaps? Jeez, just about every aspect of Congress as an entity is uh, either inadequate in some degree or out of date. Take their technology. A common complaint amongst members of Congress is that they get a PDF of a bill sent to them and they're encouraged to you know, read it and hopefully sign off on it. Well, where are the track changes? Why am I looking at this document and it's referencing things like 39 U.S. Code Section 1A, B3, but there's no explanation of what that is. How am I supposed to assess this? Apparently, I have to go online and look up that piece of the current law and try to figure this out. Like the whole, you know, the track changes, things like that, little pop up hyperlinks, bubbles, things that would explain what <laughs> a provision might mean. That's not there. They're not working in the cloud, they're still shoveling paper to each other and emailing PDFs. You know, members of Congress until recently, when they started their jobs, they were handed pagers, beepers. You know, like from that Seinfeld episode 30 years ago, why were they given those? Because that's how they would be notified when there was a vote called and that they needed to show up and vote. Why wasn't there an app? Oh, they just hadn't developed it. Like, and that's just a technology slight. Processes, look at our budget process. 50 years old. Congress is not following it. It doesn't incentivize budget, <laughs> sensible budgeting behavior. It actually incentivizes bad behavior. That's an example of a process that's lousy. Hearings, you know, they've devolved, but it's still the same format for the most part. You can bet a bunch of guys and ladies in suits up on a dais looking down at witnesses. You get three minutes to give a statement. Then you get questions, and then they gavel it and leave. Like, is that the best way to learn, to study an issue? No. People. Congress has fewer staff than it did 40 years ago. Yet it's got way more work to do. Like, that's a problem, too. It's got fewer people. You mean fewer staff per office? Because the, the number of, of members, obviously, is constant. And that's something maybe we should discuss. Mm -hmm. Like, the number should be much greater, right? Oh, yeah. We're, uh, the average member of the House of Representatives has 760,000 constituents. You know, the number of Americans keeps going up and up. But for the last 100 years, the number of representatives has been basically frozen. Yeah. 
I remember reading something like that, that when it started out, they maybe represented 80 to 100,000 people each on average, which if you th thought about it, it's like, that might be doable. <laughs> That's like a very, very <laughs> large college town. You might actually be able to have a sense of what's going on. But then if you uh, multiply that times eight, uh, it becomes impossible, obviously. Yeah. And I would say that, you know, the other thing, and this is something I know you've thought much about and spoken out about, is uh, Congress is nonpartisan nerds. You know, like you said, member of Congress, they, they get hit with a difficult issue. The first thing they want to do is like, oh, I'll just turn to somebody in private industry. Or perhaps that person in private industry or a representative from K Street shows up in their office before they even ask, yeah. um, whether it's banking or some other issue. Congress has fewer nonpartisan nerds working at the Congressional Research Service and the other legislative branch support agencies than it did 40 years ago. And in the early 90s, you know, they got rid of the Office of Technology Assessment right before the internet was about to bloom. They just threw those 120 smarties away. Yeah, yeah, that, 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 that was super painful. We've been living with the repercussions ever since. Well, okay, so that's a relatively reasonable description of oh, what's been going on. Um, and, and then this is even before the unprecedented events of the last number of weeks where uh, you had Speaker McCarthy get ousted and then a bunch of, of failed speaker uh, nominations and then eventually a new speaker gets installed. Uh, now, we're, we're not sure how much this new speaker is going to be able to get done. There are a lot of important pieces of business uh, uh, on tap. How did you perceive and receive uh, McCarthy's ousting. I, I personally, at the time, I went on CNN and said, look, guys, I may not like Kevin McCarthy, but I prefer having a functional government to a non-functioning government. So, <laughs> you know, and, yeah. and that, and that, that anyone who says they know what comes next is lying because no one knows. So maybe we could have made something work in terms of a deal, like instead of having all the Democrats vote against Matt Gaetz, I, then some Democrats yelled at me about how <laughs> how, how McCarthy bad. And then I, I was thinking, like, well, can you guarantee that his replacement's going to be better? I mean, certainly you can't guarantee that with a straight face. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. No, it was, uh, it was distressing to see on a couple of counts. I mean, you know, for one, there had been a sort of norm over the last... 15 years or so, where the speaker and the minority leader kind of had an agreement that if there was ever any, if there was an effort to remove a speaker by his or her own party, the other party would kind of stay out of it, right? Uh, Nancy Pelosi had a deal like that, but we saw that norm break down. We saw eight Republicans vote against McCarthy, all the rest supported him. But all the Dems decided to show up and vote. They didn't have to vote. They could have just not shown up. They could or they have voted just voted present, present and just been like, hey, guys, yeah. you know, and then you fall short. That's what I was saying. It's like just like, you know, you can bail them out without bailing them out if you feel like it. But I don't blame Hakeem Jeffries for doing that. I, I understand that, you know, this is the new world of really brutal partisan hardball on high salience issues. I mean, just look at how House Republicans behaved on January 6th like trying to decertify or say that, you know, these electoral slates coming from the states were not, you know, real or they were inaccurate and we should send them back and not count them. So it was disappointing on that count. But like you said, it was also disappointing because there was no plan on how to replace Mr. McCarthy. 
Like, if you had a good white knight candidate behind him that everyone would rally behind, that'd have been great. But instead, you know, Gates being the kind of publicity performance hound and personal axe grinder kind of guy he is, he just went in and decided to, to blow things up. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online... I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S VPN dot com slash Yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash Yang to learn more. Yeah, so so we'll we'll see whether uh, three weeks of chaos have led to anything better and more stable. Uh, I'm I'm personally a proponent of uh, aid to various international allies. And so it's, it's been upsetting that that has gotten sidetracked or delayed or maybe even prevented. Um, we shall see. So, so you've been trying to make a case uh, in the think tank world for the last nine years. I'm, I'm a solutions guy. Uh, I'm a big fan. So what are the major things that you've been pushing for on the outside world, uh, in your book and otherwise. You're like, look, guys, I came from the bowels of Congress. I was a nonpartisan nerd. I know how stuff works there and doesn't work. And here's what we should do. Yeah, well, certainly I would start with uh, staffing, staffing up on the nonpartisan nerds, having those as a resource and as a counterbalance against the kind of private sector moneyed interest pressures uh, that get in Congress's ears. Um, that's that's the first thing you have, you have to do. Uh, the second thing you have to do is to start drawing on some of the insights gained by the Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress about how to run committees in ways that are just less toxic for all involved. Um, you know, one of the things that the Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress figured out that if you put people at a round table and you seat them kind of Dem Republican, Dem Republican, instead of splitting it up into two sides, and you have the witnesses interspersed there, you can have real conversations. And sometimes, if you want to be really clever, you don't have to call it a hearing. You can have it be a roundtable, which means you don't have to have the cameras there. 
So the incentive to act up in front of the cameras and use that as a vehicle for fundraising or partisan point scoring, those incentives go away. And you can have frank conversations where people are able to say, like, I don't know, you're a Republican and you got something interesting to say to me as a Democrat on this issue. I think we might have grounds to get together on that. When a camera's president, you can't do that. <laughs> so that would be certainly one way. And budget process. Our nation's finances are a wreck. That law has to be rewritten, soup to nuts, to fix the situation. How many members or insiders of Congress are on the same page? We're like, yeah, this shit sucks. Because I, I got to say, like, there have to be some. <laughs> you know, that's, you are absolutely right. That's, that was one of the things that really fueled me to take the leap from a tenured job for life at the Congressional Research Service to a non-tenured position in a think tank. It was everybody on Capitol Hill, with the exception of a few outrageous characters, is miserable. They're not having fun. They came here to do stuff, and they're finding themselves just swallowed up in Byzantine goofiness that's not satisfying. And I kept wondering, like, look, you people, <laughs> per the Constitution, have all the power to change. Why don't you? And it seemed to be a kind of collective action problem, a learned helplessness, where people just kind of looked around and shrugged like, yeah, that's the way this place is. And I started trying to say, like, look, it hasn't always been like this. And it doesn't have to be this way. You can reorganize. You can fund yourself as much as you want. Just be the change. So let, let's talk about the mechanics of this a little bit. Um, the Constitution is silent in how Congress runs. It's essentially yep. this self-generated rule book. Uh, so is it the case that any majority leader could be like, all right, guys, here's the deal. We're going to get ourselves some more nerds. We're going to change our seating assignment. We're going to not have TV cameras and everything. We're not going to call it a hearing. We're going to spend money on tech for ourselves. We're, we're going to do all sorts of stuff to, to modernize. Like, is that all it would take? Yeah. And the best part is you don't even need the leader of the chamber to do a lot of that stuff. Um, you know, how much money does the legislative branch get and kind of does it have a new OTA get created or an office of you know, regulatory review in the legislative branch? The people on the legislative branch appropriations uh, subcommittees, they just write that in a law, pass it through the chamber, bada bing, bada boom. Committee chairman, they don't have to hold hearings in the old fashioned way. They can do whatever they want. They're free wow, man, this, this is like a physician heal thyself thing. What a magical vision you have. <laughs> I mean, it'd be great for the country. It drives me crazy that you have these folks on Capitol Hill who proclaim that they're miserable, yell at the institution they're within, but then frequently won't lift a finger to make the changes that they can make. Like, that's not okay. <laughs> be the change. That, that's funny and dark, uh, but I'm sure accurate. Uh, you know, I've talked to any number of members who show up, and, um, and there is this kind of helplessness that they describe um, that, you know, if you had enough people to get together, maybe they could change it. So you have uh, been advocating for things outside of Congress, too, around structural election reforms. Uh, you think that the primaries are a problem. You're concerned, like I am, that they might have a contingent election like they did in 1824 mm -hmm. because no one gets to 270 electoral votes. I will say that that, that danger is uh, more prevalent this time 
for a number of reasons. Um, no labels is one possibility. Another possibility is uh, some kind of confusion or dispute. Um, you are going to have RFK out there as an independent that we know of, and there might be others. Um, so what is your short list of most urgent reforms uh, that you think might give us more of a fighting chance and maybe even have the leaders of Congress come together and say, hey, guys, we, we can do things differently? Well, yeah, certainly you, 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 flag, you flag my two immediate concerns. First, uh, the House of Representatives needs to clarify its rules and procedures for handling a contested election. I mean, they're really basic questions, like a certain number of members from one state, if they split three to two in favor of one candidate in favor of the other or the versus the other, does that you know vote get counted? Or do they have to be unanimous? Like, there's really basic things about proceedings that are just not in place. And that just opens up a terrible, terrible possibility of people following really bad incentives like they did back on, on January 6th, when, again, we had a 100-plus-year-old statute that was very vague and was grossly out of date. And the, so, you know, it's like a game. If the rules are not clear, people are going to exploit them to the hilt. So that is a big thing. Second thing is I really do believe states, um, counties, municipalities need to continue experimenting with a whole variety of systemic election reforms, whether it's ranked choice voting, final five, nonpartisan uh, redistricting, approval voting, experiment. And let's see if we can get candidates who are better in quality, but also better incentivized in terms of how they behave when they campaign and how they govern. And let's take away those lessons and see if we can keep, you know, improving this machinery of governance. Yeah, I mean, that that's the Ford Party's tune for sure. So are you a multi-member district guy too then? I, I'm, I am, I'll, I'll confess. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm, I'm intrigued by it. Lee Drutman's a friend of mine. He's a super smart guy. I read just about everything he writes. Um, but I'm not convinced yet. Uh, not least because it would only apply to the House of Representatives, not the Senate. And moreover, you know, multi-member kind of multi-party parliamentary sort of structures, those usually are in parliamentary systems where, like, when your party wins, you also get positions in the ministry, the executive branch. And that doesn't work in our separation of power system. So that kind of concerns me. I'm also... You know, another thing I've got is an open question, and I want to talk to Lee and other really smart people about this. I'm not sure there's any other government that has candidates funded the way we fund candidates here in America, with all the dark money sluicing around versus party money versus individual money versus... And that, that creates a market. And what happens in that market? Do we end up getting a troll party? where they literally are committed and branded on, like, <laughs> trolling governance That would actually uh, do explicitly. pretty well. If you had the troll party, you would get a solid 5 to 10% of Americans. <laughs> I, 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 I say it. It's like that when they named that boat Stinky McStinkface or whatever that was. So you've been inside, you've been outside. Do you still have friends who are, uh, like, lifetime tenured uh, nerds inside Congress? And then how do they look at you? Do you guys have lunch and be like, hey, like what's life on the outside? And, <laughs> and also, um, as you've been campaigning for various changes, uh, 
uh, over this last number of years at multiple think tanks. Um, what level of optimism do you have? I mean, certainly the concern level keeps on rising. Even you might not have predicted this, uh, you know, historic uh, ouster and uh, fail. Well, maybe the the failed nomination vote, so any of us could have predicted <laughs> afterwards. It's like, hey guys, that guy was ginning up for the speaker slot for years and years, and he barely got it. So it's like you guys just trying to pull it off, uh, you know, immediately. It's going to be unlikely. So yeah, inside versus outside, and what what's your level of optimism? Yeah, I absolutely stay in contact. Um, I have these. They are they are friends. Um, they are super smart, so I learn from them when I listen to them. Um, and also, they have information that I'm just not privy to. Um, and, you know, sometimes when I write stuff on the outside, you know, maybe I only get 90% correct. Maybe I get only 80% correct. Maybe I didn't notice a variable. And these people can help clue me in and make me smarter. So, uh, absolutely, I stay connected with them. And, you know, as far as the optimism... Uh, I guess I'm by nature kind of optimistic. I'm a realist, but I'm optimistic. Uh, I feel like because there's this natural churn in representative government, I mean, one of the things we found, for example, in our survey of, of congressional staff is that the average tenure is less than seven years. So, and by the way, always... that, that burnout's getting worse and worse. From what I've heard, it's like the 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 people there. It used to be like, hey, if you have a job on Capitol Hill, then you are uh, doing the greatest job of all time, and mm -hmm. it doesn't matter what you get paid, doesn't matter what your hours are. You're like a modified West Wing character. You're living the dream, and then now yeah. more and more people are like, "And this sucks," you know. Like, wait, we get here, the climate is nasty. I don't get anything done. It used to be that you might socialize with staffers in other offices, and now you don't because all the doors are closed because everyone's, uh, you know, a little bit uh, anxious. Um, so people are burning out more and more. Yeah, yeah, that's one why a bunch of us left, right, center have advocated and had some success with um, getting those people paid more, but also improving the kind of working environment down there, you know, creating more of a career pathway for going up, clarification of roles, you know, dealing with the sexual harassment problem that's been on Capitol Hill forever, like trying to improve it so you can stop that turnover because that's a huge brain drain. And all of that flows to the private sector for the most part. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I can actually relate. Like I have a, a friend I went to school with uh, who wound up on Capitol Hill, very talented, um, ended up a chief of staff to uh, one senator and then another senator, and then became a lobbyist because he's like, okay, like, you know, what, what next? He was a very, very talented guy. Um, and so he went to the private sector the way you're describing. By the way, I remember when he started, he was like, I'm never going to become a lobbyist. And then fast forward 15 years, he became a lobbyist. And like, I didn't blame him at all because that's what the market was for his, uh, his experience. Yeah, yeah. It's, the legislative branch has frequently been penny-wise and pound-foolish. And, um, you know, this gets us back. <laughs> this actually ties back to the primaries thing. You would think that members of Congress, if you were really cynical, would be like every year voting to raise their own pay and to hire more staff and to just we'd be, be it would be better off if they did. <laughs> but the, actually, the opposite is true. And in part, it's because GOP legislators running through a primary want to be able to brag that they did not raise their own pay. 
and that they're actually not spending all the money that's allotted to their office, but they're returning some of it to the treasury, which means that, you know, you're understaffed, your staff aren't being paid as well as they should, and guess what? They leave. They're not going to hang around. People have lives to live. You know, people want to have families. They want to own property, and, you know, you're getting paid $34,000 a year or $41,000 a year in a junior staff position. Like, why are you going to hang around for that, especially with the work environment? Wow, it's that low? It's even lower than I thought. I mean, is that in their home district? Because in, in D.C., they probably have to make a little more just to live, or is it just that low? <laughs> it might be that low. Uh, it's, yeah, the, yeah it, it, it is that low. I mean, chiefs of, chief of staff, the people at the top of the pecking order, you know, they're in a lot, they're in a lot better spot. But, uh, you know, D.C., I've been here 20 years. Uh, the cost of living here is it's not quite New York City high, but, boy, it's, it's expensive. Yeah, I'm going to go on the record and say I think that congressional salaries should be higher for members. I mean, 174000 sounds like a lot, but if you have to maintain a place in D.C., which you probably do, and a place in your home district, which you probably do, uh, it's, it, it's not that much. You know, I mean, um, that, that's pre-tax. So, you know, after you pay taxes and the rest of it, then pay rent on two places uh, is not that much. Um, I, I actually think that kind of stuff ends up encouraging corruption, because there are a lot of members that are looking around being like, wait a minute, why am I living hand to mouth? And then you're surrounded by rich people all the time. And the rich people are like, ooh, do I have an opportunity for you? <laughs> you know, and, and, like, and, and then you're like, oh, I should be friends with you. Um, and so you wound uh, up, wind up with all, all kind of uh, influence uh, and corruption that might not be the case if you paid someone enough where it's like, look, I actually don't need stuff from you. Like, you know, I'm getting paid. I don't know what the appropriate level would be. I also think we should pay people on the way out to encourage them not to become lobbyists. Like, if they become lobbyists, then you don't get this money. But if you if you head to a uh, think tank or uh, university or nonprofit, then we'll, we'll pay you this money uh, just try, to try and get them out of the revolving door. Yeah, but no, I, I just circling back to your question, I am, uh, I, I am optimistic. I mean, 2014, when I was finishing up my time at uh, Congressional Research Service, Nobody was talking about congressional capacity. The phrase just didn't exist uh, on Capitol Hill. And now it's a thing. People are talking about it, and they're moving forward bit by bit. It's small stuff. They're not tackling the big problems like how do we divide up the work between committees and how do we fix the budget law. Like That stuff's going to be stuck for a while because it's hard. But smaller stuff. You know, let's pay staff a little bit more. Okay, let's make Capitol Hill a little less toxic workplace. You know, used to be the case, for example, this is crazy, used to be the case that if you were a staffer and you were sexually harassed by a member of Congress, you had no in-house legal resource to go to to fight back, but the member did. How could that be right? But that's the way it was for decades. Well, guess what? That's changed. So there's been these small things that are moving forward. And the fact that we had the Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress, a group of people who were devoted to working on this stuff, was great. And now they're a subcommittee. Like, that's all they do is just work on implementing this stuff and generating new ideas. And they're just churning along in a bipartisan way. That wasn't here 2014 and earlier. Um, so this is good. Now, if we can just get the Senate to do that, Maybe have some conversations around the filibuster and holds and the other sort of stuff 
that's going on there, and then get them both together to work together on kind of Congress-wide stuff, like the budget law, well, maybe we could actually make a real improvement for I uh, retire and spend my golden years sitting in a rowboat with a fishing rod in my hand. <laughs> now, I, you have the same spirit I do, Kevin, which is like, if things were going better, I'd go do something else, and nothing would make me happier. <laughs> um, so, the closing note, a lot of what you've written about is news to most people. Like, most people don't understand the inner workings of what's going on in, in, in Congress. Do you think, it, like, here's my sense. I think if people understood just how dysfunctional it was, they'd be they'd be pissed off <laughs> personally. Like if you, if people understood, cause like I have enough friends in Congress where like I hear stuff and I'm just like, dude, that sounds terrible. <laughs> like, that, that sounds, that sounds super miserable. Even something as basic as like, what, what's that? You spend 50 to 60% of your time dialing for dollars. That sounds super miserable. <laughs> you know, like, like, why, like why, why am I, you know, like, why are we trying What Like, and you know, but as soon as you get in the system, you know, it's like, well, this is the way I advance. So do you have a message for people who um, who uh, are on the outside looking in about, like, you know, how Congress... Because even now, like, the average American has caught on that something is amiss <laughs> from this last mm -hmm. number, like, you know, of, of uh, days and weeks where, where we didn't have a speaker and a bunch of other things. Um, I, I, I mean, I, the way I would put it is that you have an institution that doesn't have the incentive to... Uh, modernize itself to re-energize itself and so people just kind of trudge along and do things that may or may not make sense uh is that like uh, but it, it is possible that if just enough of them got together they could change things for the better is that a, a reasonable perspective on it yeah yeah absolutely um to the average voter the average you know, person out there listening i would say here's one small thing you could do that could create the space for members of Congress to up their game and to improve things. And that is to go to your senators and members' websites, click the contact button, and write them a little note asking them, what are you doing to improve the functioning of Congress, and what are you doing to work across the aisle with members of the other party to advance the public good? Those, those two little questions. Please write back to me promptly. Thank you. With your name. Ask them. Put them on the spot. Make them answer the question. And if they get enough of those coming in, they'll feel it. Members of Congress do pay attention to emails and mails coming in. Their staff absorbs that stuff and relates it to the member. It's worth doing. But very few people actually want to do it. It's easier just to co complain about Congress. I get it. Well, Kevin, that, that's a very, very fine directive, and I'm sure a lot of people listening uh, can do that. Uh, if they want to keep up with you, your work, your writings, how can they best do so? Oh, you can find me out there uh, on X, the site formerly known as Twitter, under at Kevin R. Kosar. Uh, you can Google uh, Understanding Congress Podcast, and you'll see that the podcast I have is on a whole variety of formats, and follow me there. And, uh, yeah, those are the two obvious ways. Um, or you can just drop me an email at kevin.kosar at aei.org and say hi. You have an entire podcast called Understanding Congress. I do. Because <laughs> <laughs> well, it's so well, hard heck, to understand. <laughs> well, heck, man, um, that, that, that's such an awesome value add. Uh, thank you for contributing that to the world. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.